This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts, here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm joined live in the studio by Daniela Cascella to discuss the life and work of Pier Paolo Pasolini. Daniela Cascella is an Italian writer, working with various ways in which criticism merges with, is haunted by, and echoes fiction and sound. She has published three books in English, Singed, with Equus in 2017, FMRL, with Zero in 2015, and On a Beam, also with Zero in 2012. This is Daniela's second appearance on the show. Her first was on our pilot episode, back in the heady days of July 2017 discussing the uses and limits of cultural criticism with me and Fatima Ahmed. Daniela, welcome back to Suite 212. Hello. Nice to have you back. It's great to be here. Uh, In an article for Minor Literatures that you wrote called Faint Signals, you quoted Pasolini at the beginning, saying that he once wrote that death is not in being unable to communicate, but in no longer being able to be understood. In the United Kingdom... I feel that Pasolini has never been properly understood. He's best known here as a filmmaker, but he's highly regarded in Italy as a poet, journalist and critic, as well as for his distinguished work in the cinema. Certainly it's true that Pasolini's main activity between 1960 and 1975 was in film, but while his novels and poetry have been translated into English, they've received far less attention. So just for listeners, some biographical information on Pier Paolo Pasolini. He was born in Bologna, which is traditionally one of Italy's most left-wing cities, on the 5th of March 1922, six months before the March on Rome that brought Benito Mussolini to power. Four years later, his father, Carlo Alberto Pasolini, a lieutenant in the Italian army, identified the 15-year-old Anteo Zamboni as the person who had attempted to assassinate Mussolini in Bologna on the 11th of October 1926, leading to Zamboni being killed and Pasolini Sr. converting to fascism. From then on, the family moved around Italy. Pasolini returned to Bologna to study literature in 1939, having been writing poetry since the age of seven. There, he became more interested in cinema and figurative arts, and captained the Faculty of Letters football team. He published his first volume of poetry in the minority Fulian language in 1942, and edited a magazine called Il Setaccio, The Civ, until he was fired by its fascist director. Already an atheist, Pasolini shifted towards communism as the Mussolini regime collapsed. Managing to avoid conscription into the Wehrmacht after the Germans occupied northern Italy and set up the puppet Republic of Salo in 1943. Uh, But his brother Guido, 19 years old, was killed in a partisan ambush near the Yugoslav border, that was now Slovenia, in February 1945 an event that had a huge impact on on Pasolini's life. On the 26th of January 1947, Pasolini's declaration was published on the cover of the newspaper Libertà. In our opinion, he wrote, we think that currently only communism is able to provide a new culture. He wrote this despite not being a member of the PCI, the Italian Communist Party, which was the second largest communist party in Europe following the end of World War II and the execution of Mussolini. He eventually did join, and he stood out for defying the idea that communism was antithetical to Christian values, even though Pope Pius XII had excommunicated communists from the church. In September 1949, he was accused of sexual misconduct with three 16-year-old boys. When questioned, he cited André Gide, the 1947 Nobel Prize for Literature laureate. This attracted the attention of the regional press. Pasolini was fired from his teaching job and expelled from the local Communist Party, and he moved to Rome with his mother in 1950. 
His literary career took off in the mid-1950s when he published his first important collection of Friulan poems and a novel called Ragazzi di Vita, translated as Hustlers, which brought an obscenity lawsuit. Pasolini was exonerated, but thereafter treated with suspicion by the Italian government and the tabloid press. Nonetheless, the communist establishment welcomed his second novel, Una Vita Violenta, A Violent Life, and he wrote a column for the PCI magazine, Vie Nuove, from 1960 to 65. He worked with Federico Fellini on the dialogue for the film La Notte di Cabiria, Knights of Cabiria, in 1957, and directed his own first feature film, Acatone, in 1961. This story of pimps, prostitutes and thieves aroused controversy, and his short film La Ricotta, in which Orson Welles plays a director making a film about the crucifixion, was censored, with Pasolini put on trial for offence to the Italian state and religion. Despite this, his film career continued, with international critical acclaim for The Gospel According to Matthew from 1964 and Theorem in 1968. He made a trilogy of bawdy adaptations of classic literary works, starting with Boccaccio's Decameron before Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Arabian Nights between 1971 and 74. His final film, Salo, which transposed the Marquis de Sade's novel 120 Days of Sodom to the Italian Social Republic, Mussolini's pu puppet regime of 1943-45, remains one of the most controversial feature films ever made. It was premiered at the Paris Film Festival on the 23rd of November 1975, three weeks after Pasolini was murdered at the beach in Ostia, just outside Rome. A 17-year-old, Pino Pelosi, was convicted of killing Pasolini in 1976, but retracted his confession in 2005, and the mafia-style revenge killing is unlikely to have been committed by one person, and the identity of Pasolini's killers remains shrouded in mystery. More on all of this later in the show. So, Daniela, I thought it would be nice to just start the show by asking you how you came to Pasolini's work, what did you encounter first, what did you encounter later, what continues to inspire you? Yes, um, actually, it's been really interesting to, to go back and prepare uh, for this show. Uh, Jude and I have had the show in mind for quite some time, and uh, it is our Pasolini, it is our view into Pasolini, it's not going to be an exhaustive service so it is a good uh, way to start um, and I think that my father had um, on his bookshelves a copy of both Ragazzi di Vita and Una Vita Violenta uh, but as a child I was aware of course I was aware of their presence in the house but I never fully um, got a chance to read them because of the language, uh, the dialect they were written in. And at the time, it was quite uh, difficult for me to understand. And I'm quite sure that the first um, awareness, I like to say it's always been at the back of my head. His work has always been in my in my, in my my mind and in my heart. Uh, but a full acquaintance was definitely through uh, films uh, at university because I was studying our history and like we will discuss later uh, his relationship uh, with our history was quite uh, profound and uh, important in his, in his own art so yeah it's, it's definitely films although I will um, probably um, choose poetry as the key encounter Having watched the films, uh, the meeting, my, my encounter with the pr poetry was the one that really um, allowed me to enter his work uh, from a different angle, from a more uh, deep connection. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I envy you that route in through the, the writing, the literature, the poetry, because I, I do not read or speak Italian. Um, and I, as I sort of intimated in the introduction to the show, I know Pasolini very much as a filmmaker. I really discovered what I guess we would call art house film as a undergraduate as a student and this world of European and global cinema opened up to me and I gave myself a crash course in in such in non-English language cinema and Pasolini was one of the names that stood out he stood out for his politics which were very intriguing to me uh, I was very interested in fascist and post-war Italy, uh, particularly 1960s, 1970s Italy, which is politically a very complicated time. 
I was interested in the fact that he combined writing and filmmaking. Uh, I I think certainly in the United Kingdom, not enough writers work in film and not enough film people write. It's something I've always been been very interested in as well. Uh, but most of all, I was was interested in in the works. I was interested in the fact that a public, openly gay, um, Marxist atheist made such a film as The Gospel According to Matthew, which was the first feature length film of his I saw. We're going to come back to that. I also saw La Ricotta as part of the collective film Rogo Pag, which was a composite film with entries by Pasolini, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Roberto Rossellini and uh, Ugo Gregoretti, who is the only one of those directors whose work I haven't really become more acquainted with. And obviously the, you know, politically important and horrendous manner of his death intrigued me as well. Um, I want to go into the conversation now by starting about talking about Pasolini as a, as a writer and as a journalist. Um, in the last interview we ever gave, Pasolini was asked about his favourite way of defining himself. Did he call himself a journalist, a film director, a poet? And he replied that, on my passport, I say writer. He was also asked about being a poet and filmmaker. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, there is a profound unity between the two of them. It's as if I were a bilingual writer. Mm -hmm. So we're going to open this section uh, with a reading from uh, one of Pasolini's poems, um, as I said in the introduction, he established himself first as a poet. And uh, I'm going to read from the uh, bilingual edition uh, translated into English by Stephen Sartarelli. I'm going to read an excerpt from um, from one of his poems, uh, Gramsci's Ashes, about the um, political theorist and PCI politician Antonio Gramsci. Um, so this was published in 1957. Sorry. And uh, I'm going to read um, part three of the poem in English, and then Daniel is going to read it in Italian. So he writes, A red cloth like those the partisans once wore around their necks, and beside the urn on softened ground, two geraniums, a rather different shade of red. And you, here, banished with your hard, uncatholic grace, registered among the dead, foreigners, Gramsci's ashes, torn between hope and disillusion, I draw near, having chanced into this spare green corner, before your grave, before your spirit left down here among the free. Or perhaps it's something else, more ecstatic but more modest too, some drunken adolescent symbiosis between sex and death. And in this country where your ferment knew no rest, I sense how wrong you were, here in the quiet of the tombs, and yet how right as well, about our unsure lot, when writing about those splendid last pages during the days of your murder, and here to attest to the still unscattered seed of the ancient dominion of those dead men, still attached to possessions whose infamy and grandeur reach far back over centuries, while the obsessive ringing of anvils, however softened, muted, heart-rending, from that submissive neighbourhood attest to its end. And here too am I, Poor and wearing clothes the poor like to eye in shop windows, splendidly crass, their fabric now brown with the filth of the loneliest streets, and the benches on trolleys that confound my days, while these sorts of respites grow ever more rare in the torment of trying to stay alive. And if it's true I love the world, it's only with a violent, ingenuous, sensual love, like what once drove me, as a confused adolescent, to hate it, whenever its bourgeois evil offended my bourgeois self, and now split with you, doesn't the world seem to merit rancour and almost mystical contempt, at least the part that holds power? And yet, lacking your rigour, I get on by not choosing. I live but not wanting. As in the post-war years now past, loving the world that I hate, in its misery, scornful and lost, through some dark scandal of conscience. Okay. I'll read this in Italian now. I'm so glad you're asking me to read a poem, not to sing Pasolini's song. That <laughs> <laughs> would be a disaster. Um, he wrote a song as well. And Diamanda Gallus recorded it. We'll tweet <laughs> it after the show. No, it's actually a song in his short film called Che uh, sono le nuvole. And it's a very melodic song, so we're not doing that. I'm reading a poem. Uno straccetto rosso, come quello arrotolato al collo ai partigiani e presso l'urna sul terreno cereo, diversamente rossi due gerani. 
Lì tu stai, bandito e con dura eleganza non cattolica linkato tra estranei, morti, le ceneri di Gramsci, tra speranza e vecchia sfiducia ti accosto capitato per caso in questa magra serra, innanzi alla tua tomba, al tuo spirito restato qua giù tra questi liberi. O è qualcosa di diverso, forse, di più estasiato e anche di più umile, ebra simbiosi d'adolescente di sesso con morte. E da questo paese in cui non ebbe posa la tua tensione, sento quale torto, qui nella quiete delle tombe, e insieme quale ragione, nell'inquieta sorte nostra, tu avessi stilando le supreme pagine nei giorni del tuo assassinio. Ecco qui ad attestare il seme non ancora disperso dell'antico dominio, questi morti attaccati ad un possesso che affonda nei secoli il suo abominio, e la sua grandezza, insieme ossesso, quel vibrare d'incudine in sordina, soffocato e corante dal dimesso rione, ed attestarne la fine». Ed ecco qui me stesso, povero vestito, dei panni che i poveri adocchiano in vetrine, dal rozzo splendore che ha smarrito la sporcizia delle sperdute strade, dalle panche dei tram da cui stranito il mio giorno, mentre sempre più radeo di queste vacanze nel tormento di mantenermi in vita e se mi accade di amare il mondo nel che è più violento ingenuo amore sensuale, così come confuso adolescente un tempo lo diai, se in esso mi feriva il male borghese di me borghese, e ora scisso con te il mondo getto non appare di rancore e quasi di mistico disprezzo la parte che ne ha il potere eppure senza il tuo rigore sussisto perché non scelgo vivo nel non volere del tramontato dopoguerra amando il mondo che odio nella sua miseria sprezzante e perso per un oscuro scandalo della coscienza what is one thing that he wasn't afraid of is to uh, go to the heart straight to the heart of contradictions and straight to the heart of uh, controversial uh, figures or problematic relationships. I mean, this whole dialogue, this whole long poem, uh, The Ashes of Gramsci, is, is constructed as a, uh, an imaginary dialogue conversation with, with Antonio Gramsci. And he, and he talks through his, his own contradictions, the contradictions he was feeling in relation to, to the Communist Party. And it is probably this uh, not being afraid to, to deal with... Um, Uh, controversial and problematic and uh, non-easy uh, contexts and, uh, and ideas, probably the one thing that I really hold on to from Pasolini. We, we asked each other about our encounter. It would be good to also to, to ask each other what, what is it that really still is meaningful for us. Yeah, I mean, what interests me about this poem about Gramsci is that, you know, by this point Gramsci was very much a martyr. Um, and was was being reclaimed by this resurgent communist party in Italy. Um, just to give a little bit more background on Gramsci for listeners who may not be familiar, uh, Gramsci had died in 1937 at the age of 46. He'd been in prison for 11 years, uh, which killed him. He was the head of the PCI in the 1920s. He was arrested under these emergency laws that followed the attempt on Mussolini's life, um, supposedly by uh, Anteo Zamboni, who um, Pasolini's father had identified as the attempted assassin. Um, at his trial, um, Gramsci's prosecutor had said, for 20 years we must stop his brain from functioning. Um, and Pasolini in this poem, as you say, describes feeling with Gramsci, but also against him. And this was written in 1954, so it's before the Soviet Union the sent Soviet, the tanks yeah. into Hungary and before Khrushchev's secret speech at the 20th Party Congress in Moscow denouncing Stalinism. Um, so I find Pasolini's complicated relationship with with the left and with its key figures uh continues to inspire me continues to interest me um something i continue to to empathize with a lot i mean i find the sort of interdisciplinary nature of his approach formally aesthetically and politically very interesting and i think something that can serve as a important model for anybody making any kind of art now Um, but in this section, I do really want to talk about why Pasolini um, is mostly known as a filmmaker here, but is seen in this much wider creative context in, in Italy. And maybe you could talk a bit more to, to how he is perceived in Italy and how important his writings are in, in Italy. Um, I wouldn't... Um have any hesitation in using the word canonical, the adjective canonical, in relation to, 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 his, to his overall work. Uh, like I said, as, as, as a student of our history, I, I, I was more aware of his um, uh, film uh, in terms of my studies, but he is uh, equally uh, known and rated as, as a writer. Uh, so I, I, I would not 
make a distinction about uh, prominence across disciplines like you you saying uh, is the case in this country i mean i'm not uh i'm not even sure whether the, the specter of uh, uh literature in translation should be <laughs> evoked here in relation to to great britain and you know the uh non availability of certain uh writings uh as opposed to uh wider distribution of films i'm i'm not sure about that you tell me um but in relation to to writing also it should be said that it covers such a range of registers um and approaches it's not only po- we read uh, an excerpt from from a poem but it's equally um prominent and significant because of his uh political journalism um which is collected in in two volumes Criticursarian Lettere Luterane more prominently and these are the articles that he wrote in the in the 70s in early 70s up to the time of his death uh, but also again equally um the novels that you mentioned at the beginning Ragazzi di vita um uh una vita violenta and and in in uh in similar uh, importance is Petrolio the, the unfinished uh, the long unfinished novel that we will talk about later and his literary um criticism he wrote for many years uh, for a periodical called Tempo uh, a range a whole range of um book reviews covering um a variety of of subjects from from uh, Marcel Schwab to of course Calvino uh, Strindberg uh, Gadda Dostoevsky uh Manzoni even Marianne Moore uh, of course Ezra Pound again uh something we'll discuss uh, in a little while uh i find it really hard to uh separate the literary criticism from the poetry from the fiction for me they belong to one uh, line of inquiry that takes uh uh different forms according to uh whichever um necessity he felt to 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 give shape to formally uh you talked about interdisciplinary an interdisciplinary approach but uh, uh it was never it was never uh a, an approach like a casual approach to to, to these disciplines disciplines and languages it was uh deeply deeply researched deeply deeply interconnected and 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 felt uh it's very easy to extrapolate uh from uh an essay or or a poet a poem or a script uh but i think that the challenge in dealing with pasolini uh is to see the whole body of work as a whole when he writes journalism he writes poetry when he shoots a film he's still um dealing with with our history and so on and so forth there's a circularity incredible circularity of uh, of references and of uh, uh ground uh creative political like you said political uh poetic uh, they go hand in hand and can't be disjointed i don't know if you have a similar reading of of his work but for me there's really this uh deep interconnectedness that makes it so special and difficult to discuss yeah i mean less less of a reading in that respect because while i have read the um the selected poetry that's mm. been published in english i haven't read any of his novels mm. um i've got but haven't read uh, an unpublished screenplay of his that verso books published a few years ago mm. with the foreword by alain badieu um so so i i just have this sort of vision of of Pasolini as as a filmmaker but somebody who you know I think documentary film mm. is often quite journalistic I think more journalists should work in documentary film and um some of Pasolini's uh, documentaries where he is just going around just talking to people are are very interesting and this gives me a cue to play um a short excerpt from a documentary made in the mid 60s called Love Meetings uh where he just went around Italy um just asking various people what they thought of about love what their opinions were on love how they felt it how important it was and so forth um and we're going to play in just a second uh, a 30 second extract uh where he interviews um the uh the Italy and uh FC Bologna uh star footballer Giacomo Bulgarelli uh Bulgarelli was um the star of uh, the Bologna team that won Serie A in 1965 uh, also represented Italy in two world cups and at Euro 68 and as far as i know it's it, he's probably the most well with possible exception of Zinedine Zidane uh he's one of the most prominent 
footballers to appear in a European <laughs> art house film. Um, George Best as well, I suppose. But yeah, if we could just play the, uh, the clip. E lei negri? Va bene, va bene. Non capisco. Va bene così. Non ha niente da dire. Come non ha niente da dire? In che senso? Lei non... Eh, non lei non pensa... Lei, lei... Non penso neanche. Ah, non ci pensa? Non ci pensa. Una tenaccia, insomma. E lei, Furlanis, pensa che questa continenza che vi viene richiesta, vi venga richiesta soltanto per ragioni fisiologiche o morali? Fisiologiche. Ma lei non pensa piuttosto che la repressione abbia come scopo quella di darvi una maggiore aggressività nel campo? So that's Pasolini talking to some members of uh, of the Bologna uh, Italian championship winning team of 1965. And it just gives you a chance to um, to hear his voice, really. Um, you know, Pasolini was, was as we said, a, a huge, huge football fan. That's something else that was was important to his work. But um, maybe we could talk a bit more about uh, one of the other interviews he did with, uh, with Ezra Pound uh, after Pound was... Ezra Pound had moved to Italy in 1924 and um, he got arrested for treason at the end of World War II. He'd made hundreds of radio broadcasts criticising the American government, attacking Franklin Roosevelt and the Jewish community. Um, these were done at Mussolini's request. Um, so Ezra Pound spent, the, uh, spent some time at a US detention camp in Pisa, including three weeks in a cage. Um, and these inspired uh, Pound's most famous volume of poetry, The Cantos. Um, I wasn't able to find an English version of this interview, but Daniela, maybe you could um, you could talk a little bit about this yes. this encounter. Another another like we said at the beginning, another controversial encounter, uh, and a lot more um, heated than the encounter with Gramsci, of course. Uh, uh, this was a very um, difficult uh, interview um, for, for Pasolini, of course, because of ideological uh, motives and all, and all that. Uh, his relationship with Pound um, initially was at once, of course, critically, critical, sorry, critical uh, of the politics, but in equally, um, Pasolini was um, uh, in awe of Pound's poetry, formally, and um, he wrote... Um, a review of Pound's poetry in which he gives a reading um, through the lens of Pound's relationship with peasant culture in America. And this is, um, this is really important. I'm quoting from um, an article from the early 70, let me find, yeah, December 1973. He mentions, um, he mentions Mircea Eliade and the theory of eternal return in relation to, to Pound and how, uh, for him, uh, Pound has uh, firmly uh, and madly always wanted to be inside the peasant world. And that's what gave his poetry strength for him. And he also says that reading the cantos uh, is the closest he's ever been to the experience of pure delirium. Uh, he says, "I don't even know which which drugs I would I could take to to be able to to write something like this." So there was there was this um, formal respect for the art uh, of Pound and for for the poetry of Pound and for the, for what he achieved as verse. His deep relationship and his deep uh, connection uh, with this with this whole theme of the peasant world, which is a, like a. a a prehistorical peasant world that Pasolini was very interested in. Um, he wrote uh, a lot about around and about this. He was uh, fully aware of, for example, of the very important uh, ethnographical and anthropological research that was being carried out in the 50s in Italy, uh, most notably by uh, um, a scholar called Ernesto de Martino, who did uh, a field trip in Lucania, the same land where he shot the gospel, according to St. Matthews, um, discovering a series, a set of traditions um, there were not um, um, Catholic tradi traditions, although they were deeply religious. So I was really, really drawn to this um, uh, Italian culture before, even before states. That's what he wrote in another in another article. And that's how he related to Pound. Um, he um, 
He was given notice about the interview only three days before it actually occurred. Apparently, he was asked to send his questions in advance. In the footage, in the existing footage that we have uh, of, the, of the meeting, Pound is 80, 82 years old. I think he's really, really old. And Pasolini is only 45 years old. And he's um, reading reading uh, poetry to him. Uh, Pound had written um, verses uh, that went, I make a pact with you, Walt Whitman. I detested you for too long. And Pasolini reads to Pound, I make a pact with you, Ezra Pound. I detested you for too long. Obviously trying to reconcile his his uh, uh, difficult, difficult position uh, from a political point of view. Uh, and we see Pasolini sketching uh, most of the time while uh, while a pound speaks. There's barely any discussion of politics. It's it's about poetry, it's about uh, that kind of, of concern. Uh, Pasolini had been strongly critical of pound, even in terms of um, um, uh, other other more specific themes in the poetry. But this is this is what happened and uh, yeah I think I believe there's still some existing footage. Yes, no yeah, subtitle, not subtitled. Find it online. Yeah. Um, I do want to just spend five minutes now just talking about Pasolini's journalism and his sort of more direct relationship with politics. Um, Pasolini's relationship with the the PCI, the Italian Communist Party, was was very complicated, as as we've already said. In 1949, the local PCI leader Fer Ferdinando Mortino denounced sort of delirious influences of certain ideological and philosophical trends of the various sheets and sarts who posed as progressives but in reality welcomed the most del deleterious aspects of bourgeois generation. Uh, Pasolini was thrown out of the um, PCI on account of these deleterious influences but as um, Luca Peretti said in a recent article for Jacobin the real issue was his sexuality. Um, you know Pasolini as we said earlier moved to Rome at this point and got to know people in the uh, Borgate, the poorer suburbs of Rome. He associated them with third world liberation movements that had quite a big influence on the European left in the 1950s and 60s. He called for the PCI to become the party of the Lumpen proletariat. Um, but as time went on, as Italian politics became more chaotic in the 60s, uh, Pasolini trained a lot of the fire of his writing uh, back onto the state and its sort of biggest institutions. In 1960, he linked a police shooting where the police killed five people at a trade union march in the Reggio Emilia region of Italy um, with the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann, which was then taking place in, uh, in Jerusalem, um, which obviously went down very badly. Um, Pasolini was quite interested in the American New Left and the connection between poetry and radicalism in, in those circles, sort of beat movement and so forth. Um, and of course he took a big interest in the student movement in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, Pasolini acknowledged the um, ideological motivations of the, uh, the students um, who were sort of starting to demonstrate in late 60s Italy. He called them anthropologically middle class and said that they were therefore destined to fail in their attempts at revolutionary change. And this is very uh, similar to the warnings that both Sartre and in particular Jacques Lacan gave to the French left in, in May 68. Um, regarding the battle of uh, Valleguia, uh, which took place in Rome in March 1968, uh, Pasolini was seen to be sympathising with the police, calling them the children of the poor, while the young militants were exponents of what he called left-wing fascism. But Peretti unpicks this a bit and says that this myth of Pasolini sympathising with the police began with the PCI to Young People, a poem that Pasolini composed after the Battle of Valle Guilia, which marked the beginning of the Italian 1968. In his usual contradictory style, he wrote that he sided with the cops because, unlike the students, they were the sons of poor people. But just a few lines after, he stated, Obviously we are against the police as an institution. The end could not be more explicit. Do I have to take into the consideration the possibility of fighting the civil war on your side, setting aside my old idea of revolution, wrote Pasolini. Um, and I think this speaks to the way that Pasolini's thought was often complex, contradictory, you know, made heavy use of irony, and it left him open to being kind of misquoted and misinterpreted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, um, at the beginning, we, we said he was not afraid of... of uh, going straight to the heart of the most complicated uh, uh, issues and, and themes, and equally, his writing is uh, constantly uh, 
questioning ideology, uh, never taking anything for granted, uh, especially especially in the journalism, but not not restricted to the journalism. You you, you could see that uh, within the same few pages, you would find him uh, questioning. Um, for example, Italo Calvino's uh, political uh, stances or lack of stances, and a uh, few paragraphs after, he will uh, praise uh, Invisible Cities uh, as, a, as a wonderful masterpiece. Uh, it was never, uh, it was never uh, uh, black and white. There's, there's, there's lots of nuance in, in, in his writing, uh, which, like you said, um, makes it very easy to misread and misinterpret uh, if quoted uh, in the wrong way. You're listening to Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I am with the Italian writer Daniela Cascella talking about the life, work and legacy of the filmmaker, journalist, poet, critic, activist and football fanatic Pier Paolo Pasolini. Um, I want to move the conversation on to his films now. Uh, we're, as usual, cramming quite a lot into our hour on the air, um, and there's so much more we could say about all of this. Uh, but I do want to spend 15 minutes or so on Pasolini's film career. As we've already said, sort of the years between 1960 and 1975, um, Pasolini focused a lot of his work on making his own feature films. He said that he worked within the commercial system. One and film per year, yeah, I believe it was. Very prolific yeah. uh, documentary and feature film. Yeah. He said that he didn't have problems funding his films because his first film, Akatone, in 1961, had been quite successful. And the only films of his that he said were commercial flops were one called Porcilla, which I haven't seen, and uh, his adaptation of uh, Medea, which I have seen, with Maria Callas, um, which is an incredibly sparse film. There's very, very little dialogue in it. It's quite a strange work. Um, but Pasolini had a producer to help him secure funding. Um, Fellini helped him into the film industry and Pasolini in turn helped uh, Bernardo Bertolucci into the film industry. Um, I want to focus the conversation on three of his works, um, all of which we've already mentioned. So the two feature films of his that I think are his greatest masterpieces, The Gospel According to Matthew and from 1964, and uh, his final film, Salo, 120 Days of Sodom, um, and also the um, the short film that he made with, um, with Orson Welles, La Ricotta. Um, I'd like to start with that one, actually. Um, I re-watched it again this week, and it's a very funny um, film, uh, about Orson Welles directing a film about the crucifixion and just the sort of absurdities that happen on set. There's a very funny encounter with a journalist um, where Orson Welles, playing the director, talks about the importance of Marxism in making films, um, doesn't really answer the journalist's question. He's quite irascible with the journalist. And then when the journalist leaves, you see Orson Welles reading a copy of Pasolini's book, Mama Roma. Um, Daniela, I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add on, on Larry Cotter. Yeah, it's an extraordinary short film um, for many reasons. Um, Orso Wells, the relationship with Orso Wells is quite interesting because it's basically uh, Pasolini's alter ego. And you can read the whole of Larry Cotter as an inflated, like a self-parody, really. Uh, so the fact that he invites somebody like Orson Wells to play the director is already uh, quite uh, a statement, uh, so to speak. And... Um, uh, the interesting, uh, one, well, one of many interesting features in, in the film, uh, besides the, uh, the f film within the film, you know, the, the story within the story, which is a technique that Pasolini uh, cherished uh, up until the very last um, uh, of his artistic uh, productions, such as Petrolio, we talk about it later. Uh, but there's two things that happen in the film, two tableaux vivants, uh, the film is black and white, and these are to full-coloured tableau vivant, which are really uh, interesting in terms of the, ryth the rhythm of the, nar the narration. Uh, he uh, reproduces two really important uh, paintings by Mannerist painters, uh, Pontormo and Rosso Fiorentino. Uh, again, his relationship with, with visual art, with painting, we haven't talked about this much, but when he was a student at university in Bologna, he um, followed the lessons of a very seminal um, Italian art historian called Roberto Longhi, who um, wrote extensively and quite importantly 
around pre-Renaissance painting, Renaissance painting, painting, sorry, all the way through to uh, to Mannerism and Caravaggio. And he was uh, so influenced by these uh, classes uh, that he acknowledged uh, this, he called it the figurative fulguration that he received during these these lessons. Um, in the in the credits of Mama Roma, he, he acknowledges Roberto Longhi, and equally is paying homage to to the um, Italian uh, this Italian painterly tradition uh, in these two tableaux vivant. Uh, but at the same time, um, he's asking his usual uh, non-professional actors um, to 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 play to. to to play the the, the very very uh, reverential you know this this very refer- reverential scenes uh, and uh, there's a very um, important moment in which um, um, reality uh, steps into the fiction where we hear the director address directly the 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 actors so we're no longer sure whether we're we're witnessing a sacred scene. Um, or, or, or something that just can, could happen in any borgata, uh, in any suburb in Rome. Uh, and I believe, uh, yeah, the film was censored uh, for a number of reasons, not only because of this uh, irreverence, irreverential uh, uh, gaze toward the sacred, but also because most famously, I think, the Stracci, the main protagonist of the film, who's an extra, who's paid to play one of the... Um, uh, thieves who were crucified with with Christ. He dies. He, he steals some food from the ricotta cheese from um, uh, from the stage, and he dies on the cross, um, burping. <laughs> so I mean, you can imagine in Catholic post-war Catholic Italy, uh, this was um, this was over the top. But I mean, the whole history of uh, Pasolini's controversies and constant trials and accusations is also uh, quite. Um, quite an interesting one to dig into because it was always a pretext for something else. The, the, the you know, the, um, the blasphemy, the disrespect was always pretext for getting at a figure that was very, very uh, unwelcome in certain circles. And then we can talk about this later on. Yeah, but we'll come back to, come back to this. Um, I mean, Larry Cotter is a very interesting companion piece to the gospel according to, gospel, to Matthew. Yeah. Um, in my mind, um, The Gospel According to Matthew is one of the greatest films ever made about Christianity. I think it is up there with Carl Theodore Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc uh, and Audette. Um, I think it's a genuinely magnificent work. It's um, you know populated largely by a cast of non-professional actors, including the, um, the Spanish actor whose name eludes me at the moment, who plays Christ um, very, very beautifully. Um, it's not quite as sparse as Medea, maybe, but rewatching it again for the first time in since I think two thousand two was the last time I saw it. Mm. Um, I was actually struck by how much of the sea the um, the film is is silent or is just mm. relying on just the sounds, um, the sounds produced by the action rather than than dialogue. Obviously, there's quite a lot of quoting of the scriptures. Um, yeah. Pasolini said that he chose the Gospel according to Matthew because he found John too mystical, Mark too vulgar, and Luke too <laughs> sentimental. Um, but I think it's a genuinely beautiful and extraordinary film, and um, it's often been noted in film criticism that such a beautiful, fairly straight-up telling of, of the Gospel was made by an openly gay, um, very committed Marxist uh, and atheist. Um, Danielle, I think you rewatched the film recently yeah, as well. Yeah, quite recently. It was interesting to think about this whole um, operation of, well, inhabiting, inhabiting the words of someone else. He's mostly uh, quoting from the gospel, but the way he's uh, editing uh, uh, becomes uh, really important. And it he makes uh, the figure of the speeches and the figure of Jesus Christ uh, uh, look like a revolutionary in his pronouncements and in his uh, invitations to uh, basically become uh, Pasolinian. <laughs> that's how I, that's 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 how I read the film this last time I saw it um, last week. Uh, Pasolini uh, used to say. Um, it was important to reclaim tradition from the monop- monopoly of traditionalists. And this is for me a very uh, perfect uh, example 
uh, to illustrate such a statement, uh, do not dismiss tradition just because uh, there's something that is a really rich uh, message in it. Um, he, in a, in a very famous interview, TV interview, he's asked about his relationship with the gospel. And his, his answer is, is, um, is quite interesting. He says, uh, there's no hope or consolation for me. Because the interviewer says, oh, do you see any hope or consolation in, in the gospel? And he says, absolutely not. For me, it's a piece of literature. And I relate to, to the gospel uh, as a human being who, who thinks through through his material. And this is this invitation to, to never take things for granted and to never dismiss anything uh, at face value and to always be critical, which is something that uh, uh, created uh, controversy and problem, problems throughout his life. But it's also the, the great, one of the greatest uh, aspects of his works in my reading. Um, yeah, um I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the sort of controversy that followed Pasolini throughout his career and probably his most controversial work was the last thing he completed, uh, which was Salo, 120 Days of Sodom, um, which he just about managed to finish in 1975. Um, in the last interview he ever gave, which was with Swedish film critics in Stockholm in October of that year, um, Pasolini said... In this new film, sex is nothing but an allegory of the commodification of bodies at the hands of power. I think that consumerism manipulates and violates bodies as much as Nazism did. My film represents this sinister coincidence between Nazism and consumerism. Well, I don't know if audiences will grasp this since the film presents itself in a rather enigmatic way, almost like a miracle play, where the sacred word retains its Latin meaning of cursed. Asked why he transposed um, the Marquis de Sade novel... Uh, in which four wealthy, powerful men kidnap 18 people, nine young men, nine young women, and then subject them to all sorts of really visceral, mental, physical and sexual torture um, and ultimately kill them. Uh, asked why he transposed this to 1945, Pasolini said, Decadence and twilight are inherently poetic. Had I set it in the heyday of Nazism, it would have been an intolerable movie. To know that all of this took place in the last days and that it would soon be over gives the spectator a sense of relief. Substantially, this is a film about true anarchy, that is, the anarchy of power. Um, I'm not sure how many people feel a sense of relief watching <laughs> Salo. Um, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece, actually. I think it's it's one of the most extraordinary films I've ever seen. Um, although it is, um, it is incredibly hard to watch. It remains banned in a lot of places. Um, it has a long history of being being censored um i mean i first saw the film last year in the cinema i sort of wanted to watch it for years but had never been able to gear myself up to just watching it at home um so me and uh, and tom overton my <laughs> co-host here on suite 212 went to see it together um i mean both agreed it was a a genuine remarkable piece of work it's it's very bold it's it's kind of composition its use of kind of color uh is very striking and it has a really strong um, strong emotional power to it that I think partly does come from, as Pasolini says, watching this this regime that is on the verge of collapse um, reach its sort of negative height. Um, we talked about hope and consolation. You know, this this is a film where no hope and no consolation is to be found. Yeah, um, well, I remember asking you a while ago uh, if you could envisage any one any artist or anyone shooting a film such as solo nowadays and and we both agree no <laughs> i can't imagine who would i mean lars von trier maybe but i much much prefer pasolini's work to his um there's this there's this thing this whole relationship with um with a body uh let's re let's remember that he disowned the trilogy of life uh, yeah, the Cameron, the, the, and the Arabian Nights, the Cameron Tales, and, and the Cameron, because he said, um, uh, "I hate bodies, and I hate how normalized. Uh, I hate sexual organs in today's Italian ragazzi." I mean, he was really uh, un uneasy with uh, bodies as commodities, um, which for him led to to Salo. Um, he he wrote, I am adapting myself to the unacceptable. I adapt my commitment. I'm adapting to degradation and I'm accepting the unacceptable with major visibility. 
this is like a posthumous letter that uh, was published afterwards. So I guess that's that's for him. It was it was it was a real realist. It was realism. It was a, a commentary on on the state of of things as he as he saw it in the seventies. Yeah, I mean the body is absolutely treated only as a commodity in this film. The yeah. bodies are useful and pleasurable to the um, the, the the four men, uh, particularly the president. Uh, in the film is played by Aldo Valetti and is just one of the most despicable performances you'll ever see on on film. He's genuinely extraordinary um, and stands out even in Salo as a as a particularly loathsome character. Um, but this is all tied. It all ties in with his critique of uh, normalization, commodification uh, of of bodies, of appearances that he. Um, uh, uh, saw in 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 Italian uh, youth, uh, in he wrote some quite controversial and famous uh, articles criticizing uh, hairstyles, fashion, and uh, and anything that made uh, made uh, the younger generations uh, normalized. That's why he was like normalized with no um, critical uh, stance whatsoever. Um. Yeah, we've got 10 minutes left here on uh, Suite 212. I think Daniela and I could talk about Pasolini all night. Uh, <laughs> but we're just going to move on to the end of Pasolini's life now. Um, as I said at the top of the show, Pasolini was murdered in Ostia, just outside Rome, in November 1975. Uh, he was enticed to this park on the beach uh, on the promise that some reels of film that had been stolen from the set of Salo would be returned to him if he uh, turned up. Uh, Pasolini was then run over several times by his own car. Um, his body was found in the park, partially burnt. Um, as I said um, at the beginning of the show, uh, doubts remain over the main suspect, a teenager called Pino Pelosi. Um Pasolini had said he was going to make a couple more films in this trilogy of death of which Salo was to be the first and then devote himself to literature um, and of course he's working at this point in the context of what became known as the years of lead um, the height of which I think is actually sort of seen as sort of 1975 to 1980 or so but really covered the period from the late 60s to the sort of early to mid 80s um, the strategy of tension in which people on the Italian left sort of accused the Italian government of actually encouraging or even perpetrating acts of terrorist violence to justify repressing the the resurgent left it can be dated to these first skirmishes between the police and architecture students at the Valle Guilia in Rome, which we've already mentioned. The first massacre was the Piazza Fontana bombing of the Banca Nazionale de Agricoltura, the National Agrarian Bank in Milan in 1969, which killed 17 people and wounded 88. Um... A policeman, Antonio Anaruma, was killed during a riot by left-wing protesters in November 1969. The autonomous movement was active in those. Um, the trade unionist, Giuseppe Benelli, was killed in police custody in 1969 after being arrested for the Piazza Fontana bombing. And this inspired Dario Fo's play, The Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Um, and all of this, of course, is in the context of the PCI, the Communist Party, having 1.5 million members and getting 15 million votes in the Italian elections in the in the mid 60s. So there was an awful lot of concern about radical left and right wing activity um, and kind of escalating political violence. Um, Pasolini worked with the uh, radical left wing organization Lotta Continua. He edited their magazine. He worked on a documentary um, called 12th of December about the Piazza Fontana bombing. Um, and he was also very interested in the uh, murder of Enrico Mattei in 1962, the Christian Democrat politician and businessman who was dismantling the Italian petrol petroleum agency GRIP, who made a trade agreement with the Soviet Union and was favourable to the Middle Eastern states who produced yeah. the oil. Uh, Mattei died in a plane crash, which was likely caused by a bomb uh, on the plane uh, organized by um, overseas secret services so um maybe we can we've not got that long left we've got oh. six or seven minutes but we could maybe talk briefly about Pasolini's final uh, unpublished novel Petrolio which was eventually published in 1992. Yeah this all this um these events that you've just summed up Juliet uh very eloquently because <laughs> uh, it's very tangled and complicated but um the whole um uh, context and situation around the uh, Matei murder um, 
was really the uh, core material that um, Pasolini w was working uh, on in his uh, for his uh, final unpublished, like you said, novel Petrolio. Petrolio means in Italian oil, uh, a novel, a novel that does not begin. If you if you see the first very first page, is it's got a footnote that says this novel does not begin. Why does it doesn't it begin? Because it's in Pasolini's view, it's a fable. It's not. It's not. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to take place in the realm of the novel. He wrote very importantly. He wrote a, a letter to Moravia about the form of this um, of this novel, which is supposed to be um, um, a critical edition of an unpublished text. So his idea was was to write a novel which was not a novel at the time. Of course, he was fully aware of, of post-structuralism uh, discourses. So he veils the whole story around the Enrico Mattei and uh, um, and the Chefis scandal and, and the implications and uh, uh, corruption um, that were going on at the time um, into these these um, uh, unfinished project. Uh, it's really hard to, to read from it and quote from it. It's a cento. It's truly a, a, a mixture of styles. Um, there's anything from lyrical description to very harsh uh, scenery to, to very delirious ones and uh, medieval uh, uh, medieval uh, evocations. Uh, most importantly, he openly plagiarizes Dos Dostoevsky's demons. Uh, there's a whole sections of section about that. Uh, there are stories within story. He was really interested in, in that format. Uh, but Crucially, um, this this um, open open accusation of, of the of the politics of any and um, the the post Mattei uh, situation in Italy that was all held here. Uh, the novel was unpublished. Uh, when it was published, there was a lot of uh, political evidence that was censored and not uh, not uh, made public. The the, the criticism was more uh, interested in driving the attention toward the self of exaggerated and sexual scenes in, in the novel uh, whereas the you know the, the core um, interest of Pasolini was was in the politics of it yeah I just want to we've not got long left at all now but I want to quote quickly from one of Pasolini's most famous pieces of journalism yeah. uh, it's been translated by friend of the show Giovanni Tiso from the original Italian as what is this coup d'etat I know and in 1974 Pasolini wrote I know I know the names of those responsible for what has been called a coup d'etat, but is in reality a series of coups initiated, instituted for the preservation of power. I know the names of those responsible for the Milan massacre of the 12th of December 1969. I know the names of those responsible for the Brescia and Bologna massacres of the early months of 1974. I know the names of the leadership that manipulated both the old fascists who devised the coups and the neo-fascists who materially executed the early massacres, as well as the unknown perpetrators of the most recent massacres. He carries on saying, I know, but I don't have any evidence. I don't even have clues. I know because I'm an intellectual, a writer who tries to follow everything that happens, to imagine everything that is unspoken or unknown, who connects facts that may seem disparate, that puts together the organised and fragmentary pieces of an entire coherent political picture, who restores logic where arbitrariness, folly and mystery seem to rule. It's all part of my craft and of the instinct of my craft. I believe it is unlikely that my novel in progress may be wrong. That is to say that it may be disconnected from reality and that its reference to real persons and facts may be inaccurate. Furthermore, I believe that many other intellectuals and novelists know what I know as an intellectual and novelist because restoring the truth of what has happened in Italy after 1968 is not that difficult. And, you know, it was for this project that yeah. Pasolini, I think, died. Um, the Wooming Foundation wrote about him. Um, they quoted um, an author, Stefano Redata, who summarised the issues in a sentence saying Pasolini remained uninterruptedly in the hands of judges from 1960 to 1975 and talks about a single trial that dogged Pasolini in courtrooms countless times, several times a day, uh, and had a relation to a right-wing press campaign against Pasolini that was endless, always homophobic. Uh, Sergio Leone criticised him for normalising gay relationships. Uh, it aimed to instigate police and judicial actions, as well as attempted attacks by fascists. I want to just close the show by quoting um, 
a writer who wrote very interestingly on Pasolini, which was the um, queer activist Mario Mielli, who wrote In Elements of a Homosexual Critique, his only book. Uh, Mielli quoted the Turin gay collective Fiori, who wrote that Pasolini was not murdered because he was a man of culture, politics or poetry, but because he was homosexual. The homosexuals seem to be weak, blackmailable. Crimes against homosexuals find too much justification and unspoken consensus. Wu Ming extend that out a bit and say that he's murdered for being homosexual, for being a communist and for being such a aware, committed critic of the Italian state and Italian politics. Uh, but I'm just going to end the show uh, with, Mas- uh, with uh, Mario Mielli's tribute uh, where he writes, In memory of Pasolini, homosexual director, enough with the permissible but guilt-tripped homosexuality between street kids and the fires of Canterbury, between an Oedipus, a pig, Theorem and Salo, between death in Venice and the death of Lucchino Visconti's Ludwig at the bottom of a lake. It- this program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.